action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the Trash Movie Podcast, with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we went to the movies many, many times in 2018. We are going to run down on this New Year's Eve episode our top five and our bottom five movies of 2018 each. 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 We've each seen at least 10 films. <laughs> at least. Yeah. Been to cinema at least 10 times this year. Yeah. And we just happens to have seen five we think are great <laughs> and five we think are shit. <laughs> so let's get started. Joshua, we're going to start with the worst films of 2018. What's okay. your number five? Uh, so number five is Revenge, oh. um, which is a, a rape revenge action horror film. Is it's, it, is um, it kind of exploitation-y? It really wants to be a a postmodern revenge rape revenger. It wants to be like the feminist version of a rape revenge film. Okay. So it's directed by a woman, Coralie Fargiat, Fargiat, um, and it's about uh, Jen, who's an American socialite. She is in a relationship with this like well-off guy. They fly out into the middle of the desert for a weekend together. His two friends are there as well. And she ends up getting horrifically raped by these two men. Um, she runs off into the desert. They push her off the edge of a, a mountainside. She dies, or so we think. She comes back to track them down to kill them. So there's a supernatural element. There's potentially a supernatural. I mean, yeah, she looked really freaking dead. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a supernatural revenger. And I completely understand its intentions, wanting to kind of um, make a comment about you know, all these rape revenge films that have come before, like I Spit on Your Grave. And um, it, it wants to do something different. It wants to give a feminist, a female perspective on this kind of film. Sadly, I just don't, it didn't succeed for me. Have you seen it? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that I've brought it up again. <laughs> um, I just, I could see what it was trying to do. I think it did not succeed. I felt that even though it was a female director, she she was still using kind of very male visuals. Like what? She didn't treat her female lead's body the same way she treated her male lead's body. Was it kind of oogling on the female? So it, it very purposefully ogles the female at the beginning of the film because that's how they all start. Yeah. And it's obviously doing that on purpose. But then later on in the film, when the the main guy is full-on completely naked... The camera doesn't deal with him in the same way. It just kind of, it, you know, it doesn't ogle him in the way that the camera ogled her. So it just doesn't, it feels completely unbalanced and right. it's not making the right point. So it's almost like a female director directing with the male gaze. It is. Yeah, it really is. And I, I just don't, the idea of revenge is, is this kind of very American religious eye for an eye thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, the real revenge that this woman, this young woman who was horrifically abused, the real revenge she could have got was for these men to be tried in court and sent to jail. Yeah. Instead, she decides to creatively hunt them down. But she's and, dead, right? Well, yeah, essentially. Yeah. But she decides to hunt them down and kill them in creative and hilariously ironic ways. So one of the guys who was watching her as she was being raped, he gets his eyes 
kind of he gets stabbed in the eyes and things like that is there a humor element to the film it's meant to be like a schlocky kind of play on that kind of midnight yeah. crowd thing and maybe i'm just older and not um as into that kind of thing as i used to be but i just felt if you're going to make this kind of like politicized horror film you better get your politics damn right otherwise you're opening yourself up to the criticism that i am now giving you <laughs> well that, that's 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 the point i think i was going to make that you back in the day when you were watching these schlocky things in your teenage years, mm. you probably weren't open to the fact that maybe that genre film is not the most appropriate way to deal with these kind of um, social aspects. These, yeah. These things. Rape is a very serious yeah. issue. Yeah. And-, and Hollywood has proven itself to have a serious issue with rape culture. Yeah. Um, so maybe a schlocky humor film is not, the way forward Mm. things like i spit in your grave and last house on the left are appropriate ways because they are sort of get in the dirt horror films yeah they are made on the cheap documentary almost realist style Mm. um they're almost the the found footage movies before there was even the idea of a found footage movie yeah that's true yeah but having, is it quite a sheen film? Is there, yeah, is there a yeah. Hollywood sheen to it? Yeah, it's, it's all kind of like candy pop colours and kind of like wannabe Tarantino style. Um, really gory. You're not selling it. No, it wasn't great. <laughs> and I just don't understand why. I just didn't, I didn't buy into its, its, con, its idea of female empowerment. I don't think that a woman who has been horrifically abused... I don't think that her wearing a tiny tank top that shows off her midriff Mm. um, and then branding herself with this kind of this phoenix image. Is this after she's raped and come back? She's been killed, yeah. And then getting an enormous gun, which is in itself a phallic, obviously a phallic symbol. I don't see that as empowerment. That is not empowerment. Okay. I just don't see it. It sounds like like a... Like an attempt at an iconic Grindhouse moment. Absolutely. But I haven't seen it. Yeah. My number five is Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't see that. So I have to say I'm a Queen fan. Yeah. Although I'm... I thought you were going to say I am a Queen. I'm a Queen. Um, I am a Queen fan, but I like the first 10 years of their work. I love their prog stuff. I love the early stuff like March of the Black Queen. Um, I love the jazz album. Um, that has bicycle race and they have that that almost choir of of bicycle bells mm-hmm. then there's obviously Bohemian Rhapsody from A Night at the Opera then there's A Day of the Races and there's Hot Space which most people think is crap I think it's a really brave album of a band going right well we've done everything that we possibly can with this sound let's go do this kind of uh, soulful black dance sound mm-hmm. um, and then about sort of the mid 80s they turned into like a a, a general pop band and they did some i just don't like the later stuff i really like that early stuff so i'm not biased right i'm not saying this is a brilliant brilliant film i think it's one of the worst films of this year this is why it's on my worst list but it's not the worst film because it's only number five yeah rami malik yeah, he's good, right? That's that's the only thing I heard was good about the film. Looks nothing like <laughs> <laughs> looks nothing like Freddie Mercury. You never forget that it's Rami Malek. Okay, but he captures the essence, uh-huh. which I think if you had to choose, do I want my actor to look like the person but 
feel nothing like the person or do I want my actor to feel like the person but look nothing like the person yeah did I just get all that right That's I have no idea of... but either way <laughs> he looks something like him he captures the essence and because of that it almost sells it okay he sells it more than doesn't sell it the script the script feels like a shoddy made for TV biopic or right. let's say the carpenters or something from the 90s there's some really cliche moments like standing in the rain and being depressed oh god band members meeting immediately and singing harmonies with each other and looking at each other by going yeah we're good it's just too convenient far too convenient and then the entire film has this almost internal battle is it freddy's story or is it the story of the band? Because mm. it can never make its mind up. Freddie is clearly the lead character. He's the first one we see. We don't meet the other band members until Freddie does. Mm -hmm. But then we see the rise of Queen as the band. We see them recording certain songs and having experiences as a band. But not enough time is put into the other members of the band. Brian, Roger and John, they're side characters that have zero depth and so at one point the film jumps a couple of years to 1980 and freddie's bought a new house roger comes around to see it and then freddie goes come and have a drink with me and roger says sorry fred gotta get back to the wife and kids and you think wait a moment when did he get married when did he have kids two minutes ago we saw him getting off with two girls on the tour bus and he was single so, so it's just really confusing in terms of the timeline. The timeline, you can kind of gauge it. Right. Changing fashions, changing hairstyles. But the fact that the other three members of Queen are not given any sort of characterization or depth makes me think, this is Freddie's film. But we're dealing with things to do with the whole of the band. Mm -hmm. Like... And they, 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 they are very fast and loose with the actual history of Queen. Yeah. You know, they, they purport that Queen had broken up and didn't see each other for years before they had to get back together for Live Aid, which is complete bollocks. They were on tour up until about May of that year. Oh, wow. And then they had like a month off and then they came and did Live Aid. Huh. Some of the other characterizations were great. The guy that plays Brian May is phenomenal yeah. as Brian May. Because you would look at Brian May and go, apart from the hair, how could I possibly mimic this guy because he's so bland? Yeah. But he mimics the blandness amazingly. Oh, wow. The guy that plays Roger yeah. doesn't play Roger. He's just Ben Hardy with long hair. Yeah, yeah. And he... Ben Hardy's just pretty, isn't he? Ben Hardy's just pretty. Yeah. Brian Singer has obviously said, this yeah. is my Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> but he doesn't have the skills of Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh -huh. He's an EastEnders actor playing with the big boys. Mm -hmm. And you can see him struggling. Right. Just doesn't hit those notes. There's a Mike Myers Wayne's World joke. Isn't Mike Myers in it? Mike Myers is in it as a record boss. Yeah. And the various scenes he's in, it's all a lead up to one joke. Him saying that no one is going to listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. You should put out, as the lead single, I'm in love with my car, because that is a song kids can sit in their cars to and headbang. Oh, God. And that's when you realise that the past 10 minutes of the film has just been leading up to this shit joke that uh, most people won't get. Yeah. Because for the new 
audience of people who go to the cinema. Who the fuck is Mike Myers? Who's that old guy? Yeah. How is um? How's Lucy Boynton? Because I really, really like her. Um, she she's plays Mary. Well, she plays Mary, who is Freddie's first love. Yeah. And she is the one who realizes that Freddie's gay. And well, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> if you were his lover. <laughs> but they stay friends, and you know she's just. Very competent as mm. female sidekick. Okay. There's nothing... The reviews... Until you just mentioned her, now I forgot she was in the film. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> the reviews I read that were positive were saying that the relationship between the, him and her is the most interesting in the film. It's the only relationship in the film. Because it's so given does, any kind of weight. Does it actually address his homosexuality in any meaningful way? It does. You obviously see him dressed in the ways of early 80s gays all right obviously we all dress like that then um i do right now yes your chaps are lovely um but yeah he look it's a film about a gay guy who is so wildly known to be gay you can't escape the fact that he's gay yeah they don't necessarily go into the ins and outs he barely comes out to his parents um in this version of queen before he goes to Wembley to do Live Aid, he pops round to a guy's house who he met years before. They, they then go for tea at Freddie's parents' house. Okay. Where Freddie introduces him as the boyfriend, even though they hadn't seen each other for years. And then he goes off to do Live Aid. That's so weird. So, of course, you know... Whenever I'm performing at Wembley Stadium, I always go around my parents' house for a cup of tea. Yeah. I'm not at the venue getting ready. No, no. So, yes, this film has made loads of money and it's a high-profile film and there's a gay character at its, at its heart. The centrepiece is the gay character. But Freddie is on a list, like an unofficial list I've, I'm, I'm aware of, um, the how I feel about the way that the media interacts or has opinions on certain gay men he's on the acceptable list yeah so freddie's on there elton john stephen fry graham norton these are the acceptable people that we can have we can introduce our children to yeah but people like rupert everett or george michael before he died julian clary these are not necessarily the safe they're the danger gays yeah the danger gays so we have here a positive he is a gay character in a major studio release, played by a straight man. Yeah. Played by a straight man. By a straight American. By a straight American. The reason it's only number five on my worst list, as in it's the best film <laughs> on the worst list, is because the last 20 minutes is this shining crown. They recreate Live Aid. Mm. And it is phenomenal. Mm. They, they pretty much match it angle for angle action for action and it strangely that's when he most comes alive as freddy but it was the first thing they shot yeah it was so yeah. in the the shooting schedule he gets worse as freddy <laughs> but it is phenomenal and it it's um it's so much fun that last that last 20 minutes yeah i don't see how they could have ended the film any other way because in the hero arc that they need in these kind of biopics, because it is a very run-of-the-mill biopic. You know, early start, big fortune, fall down, re-rise. Yeah. Um, 
there's no other way they possibly could have ended it. That last 20 minutes is, if I, if I saw the Blu-ray for cheap enough, I'd get it because it would just be worth it for that 20 okay. minutes. So if you're going to watch it, watch the last 20 minutes. Or just watch the well, original Live Aid on YouTube. In a weird way, it's almost better than the original Live Aid because at least the camera angles are... Yeah. They, I mean, they, they've... Yes, they've recreated Live Aid, but, you know, they have these sweeping drone shots yeah. of Wembley. And it's great to look at the CGI'd Wembley because Wembley is different now. Yeah. It was, it was knocked down 20 years ago and rebuilt as the monstrosity that we <laughs> see now. It had those, back in the day, had those two iconic uh, towers with the flags on top. Mm. It's worth it. You have to suffer the weird <laughs> film that is Bohemian Rhapsody. And there are fun moments. I mean, it is quite a funny film at times. And if you like the songs, you get to hear them because essentially the soundtrack is the greatest hits. Yeah. So some songs are shoehorned in. Like, oh, come here. I'm gonna, I've just written this song called... Um, um, another one bites the dust. Listen to this. Boom, 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 boom. And then Freddie's like got the, the lyrics going, all right, so it goes like this. Steve was stranded down, down the street. <laughs> so you get to see that. Then you get to see Brian going, I've written this. Like, I want to give the crowd a song they can sing back. So everyone do this. <laughs> so they're all going, oh, so it's, no, 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 it's this. <laughs> Buddy, you're a boy, mega bang. And they go into the song. So, yeah, all, some of the songs are shoehorned in. Oh. And they obviously recreate Live Aid. They recreate the I Want to Break Free video with the, you know, the drag and the yeah. key in the house. And the moustache. But the payoff is that last, that bit. It is worth it. Okay. It is worth it. It's a shame that Brian Singer has become the filmmaker he's become because mm. you do watch this film and think, this is the same guy that made Usual Suspects. Yeah. He's become the new Chris Columbus. Very watered down, very bland, very much well, like the new Spielberg. Like Spielberg's watered down as well. Yeah. You know, it's they don't but not operating on the Chris same Chris Columbus level. and Spielberg will finish the film. Brian Singer got yeah. kicked off. Yeah. He got kicked off. But oh, his, the shining crown of this film is Live Aid. Okay. What is your number four? My number four is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, it's half of a good film and it's half mm. of a really, a film we've seen done better before. Um, I feel like, so director Jay Bayoner, he's come in off The Impossible um, and what else has he done? I watched Some that really... recently. I was really surprised at how good it was. It's so good. It's intense, isn't it? Yeah. And like, yeah. do you know who steals the show from me in that, in that film? Tom Holland. 100%. Baby a, Tom Holland. What a little baby Spider-Man. What a fucking <laughs> phenomenal performance. Yeah, it's so good. And it's harrowing. Like when, when Naomi Watts is like struggling through the wilderness with that horrible gouge in oh her Oh my leg. God, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I put it on because sometimes I think, oh... I don't want to go to sleep. I'll, I'll like watch something shit for 20 minutes. Uh-huh. And at the moment I'm watching um, Inferno, the Tom oh, Hanks, God. just in 20 minute blocks. Cause yeah. I'm just like, this is shit. I can fall asleep to this and then switch the telly off. I put the impossible on thinking it was going to be a weepy, like a boring melodrama. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that takes, it takes a lot of skill in a storyteller. Yeah. The, the main thing, the water is almost at the start 
The film isn't about that. It's about how they piece it all back together. Their lives yeah. find each other. It's about trying to survive what happened. But I can't, apart from the CGI, I can't see a link between The Impossible and the Jurassic Park franchise. Yeah. Well, he did The Orphanage, the 2007 horror film, um, which was kind of had a genre element to it. And mm. well, it was a horror film. Um, and he did A Monster Calls, which was a, a fantasy drama based about the on... the tree? Yeah, okay. yeah, based on the Patrick Ness book. I didn't realise that was him. So he's kind of been moving into it's kind of diverse. family, yeah, family-ish yeah. territory. But that's still quite that's quite a diverse array of films. Yeah, but you can see what he wanted to do with this film because mm. the last half of the film is really fun and actually tries to do something different, which gothic. is it turns into a gothic uh-huh. dinosaur horror film. You know, set in a mansion, the dinosaurs all get out. There's some really great horror imagery. The new, the Indoraptor, the new dinosaur is kind of like, it's actually quite horrible. It makes some horrible sounds and it's got a really twitchy move because it's kind of like a prototype new dinosaur. Yeah. Which is really cool. It's just like, I hate Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard as this couple because you, you look at them and then you go back 25 years to Jurassic Park and you see what well-rounded, interesting characters um, the Sam Neill and Laura Dern characters mm-hmm. were Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant, <laughs> thingy Alan Grant and what's her face, and then you you think this, Ellie Sattler. This is the yeah. This is the 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 modern version of that. I really mm. do not see that. They're awful. Like all of their interaction is painful. Well, they're tropes, aren't they? They're pure the, tropes. The Chris Pratt and ones. the um, Bryce Dallas Bryce Howard. Dallas Howard. They're yeah. just tropes. Woman and man, very manly man, very womanly woman. It's it's in a weird way. You would think that's what they would have done back in the day. Exactly. But at least with Alan Grant, he didn't want kids. She wanted kids. He was miserable. She was quite loving of life. They were oil and water, but somehow they went together. Yeah. And it, you know, Sam Neill is a character actor. Laura Dern is a brilliant character actress. Yeah. Bryce Dallas Howard is a brilliant actress who has no place being in franchises. Mm. She she works so much better when she's in the indie stuff, yeah. like The Village, or that episode of Black Mirror. Or The Help. Or The Help. Yeah. Chris Pratt, he is a movie star. He plays yeah. Chris Pratt. So, and he'll toe the line. So if he's given a, a, a chauvinistic pig of a character, he'll do it. Yeah. But he, he's just... He's not... I don't see him as an actor. He's just someone who plays himself he plays kind of like a he plays watered down indiana jones yeah he did it in guardians he did it in this you know in guardians he did it very well and he had the benefit of having a really funny script to work with jurassic world has doesn't give him a character it just gives him a cardboard cutout you know he actually there is a very funny moment where he is he paralyzed or he's kind of like he's knocks himself out in the jungle and he's like rolling around to get away from the lava. Oh, he's been, um, he, yeah, he's been uh, tranquilized. Yeah, yeah, that is really funny. And but very he's, well he's a very, he, I mean, he's a brilliant comedian. Yeah, I give him is. that. He, he came from... Um, Arrested Development. Arrest, no, not Arrested no. Development. Community? Oh, Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. Yeah. He came from Parks and Rec. Um, he's obviously very funny in the Marvel movies. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing about this film because I didn't particularly like it either. I thought that the... Spoiler, spoiler, the clone child was just a step too far. Oh, so stupid. Just, they're literally jumping the dinosaur. Yeah. The moment when the the volcano has erupted and they narrowly escape 
and just on the pier you see a bronchosaurus or whatever it yeah. is and it it gets engulfed in the flames and it's just gives out this wail and i've never thought that pixels would just grab my heartstrings but it was agonizing that moment it's really sad i mean this film does have some good moments but overall as a film it I just felt it failed. I was completely forgettable and I even forgot yeah. that it came out this year until yeah. you just mentioned it now. So that's my, num- that's my number four. That's your number four. My number four is yeah. the new Suspiria. Oh, wow. That's my number two. That's okay. my number one. Number one? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I well, should we let's talk about it when we come to your number one then. Oh, right. Yeah. So mine is Suspiria. We'll talk about it in a moment. What okay. is your number three? Um, my number three is Venom. I did not see Venom. Did you not see it? No, because I just don't want to help Sony make any more uh, superhero movies because I never re- particularly liked their Spider-Man films. Okay. Although I liked the first Andrew Garfield one when I saw it in the cinema. Didn't like it so much again when I watched it on demand not so long ago. I got yeah. halfway through. It was boring. But it is boring. that particular style of superhero movies are so dated yeah and it's not come on any more in venom like venom takes huge leaps backwards you know like as you said when we were discussing it when it first came out you said it it looked like it was made in the late 90s or the early 2000s yeah that's what it feels like it's i mean it's it wasn't so awful that i wanted to kill myself but it was just kind of it was just like just not good just it it's kind of Michelle Williams is an Oscar winning actress. She does not need to do things she like that. Does not she's not given a character, she's given an awful wig. She's like the shrew in the story where she kind of has to break up with him because he's so awful. Yeah. Um she's just like this really thankless role. So what's what's the story cuz I've read some Venom comics back in the day. Mm. Venom is almost like a foil of Spider-Man. It's a symbiotic alien force that attaches itself to a human and will infiltrate almost like a possession will infiltrate the human and warp their mind and almost becomes one with the the symbiote it's what my tiny little mind what my tiny little mind yeah that's basically what happens in this so what's the tom hardy character like is eddie something eddie something yeah yeah, what's he like eddie brock what's he like before he gets uh, merged with the, the the venom. He's a really unconvincing investigative journalist, and he's like he's meant to be like this kind of like edgy ish um, kind of news reporter inve- investigative journalist. Yeah. So he like he um, kind of basically breaks into um, the what's it called the Life Foundation, which is like where. Oh god, what? See, it's just so not memorable. Where Riz Ahmed's character works. Riz Ahmed is the villain. Okay. Um, who's trying to exploit this symbiote. He's another person who doesn't need to do these movies. Well, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, but but as good as Tom Hardy is at being unhinged, which he is, mm-hmm. and he is later, he gets better as the film goes along, he's not the guy you cast to be your kind of... Um, geeky guy. Geeky yeah. everyman who's kind of likeable and bumbling and a bit... Um, a bit kind of hapless and he just can't do it so the first half of the film watching him try to do it is unbearable so he's trying to be christopher reeves yes basically and just failing but him as a person and the characters that we most associate with him have way too much danger yeah exactly for for that to be is that the case for that to be convincing yeah absolutely he's just not convincing in the role 
Um, and then the last... Let's, it hope tried, he got, let's hope he got paid well. I'm sure he did. Uh, well, the film was made nine hundred million pound uh, dollars. Are you shitting so, me? No, it's huge. Well, it's got a sequel. Be another there. one. Yes, yeah, there's a sequel. Um, he, um, they try, they try to make it into this kind of like banter relationship between him and the symbiote, mm-hmm. but that doesn't really happen until the last half an hour, last you know twenty minutes, half an hour. When the symbiote is is over him, and it's obviously the black venom. Yeah. Do we ever see uh, Tom Hardy's face? Is it a case yeah. of, that we see his face in the Venom in the way that we see Tony Stark's face in the Iron Man mask? Uh, is that how it's done? No, or it's not it, done like that. Does the Venom just move out of the way and we see yeah, his yeah, face? Yeah, it's like that. Okay. Yeah. Or, or it's in him, but he looks like himself, but he can like, you know, make his arms go long and kind of beat people up and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> really shit. Um, so, I mean, it was entertaining enough. It was watchable, but it was utter, utter trash. And I'm baffled by how well it's done. It's just crazy making. Was it long? So, it's about two hours, I think. Okay, so that's not long compared to no. how long they are usually. They're usually over two hours, these films now. Yeah. Does it just descend into pixels yes. bashing around? Yes. Crash bang wallop. Yeah, and it tries to recreate a lot of the comic imagery. So there's... So, spoiler, Riz Ahmed turns into Carnage. Yeah. And they fight. And there's like a slow-mo moment where Carnage and Venom are kind of tearing each other apart. And Tom Hardy and Riz Ahmed are like tumbling inside. And it's like that comic image where it's okay. all just absolutely chaotic. Which is kind of cool. Why is Venom a good guy here? Venom was always a bit of a baddie. Yeah, it's like... I think Tom Hardy's like, you can only kill bad guys or something. I don't know. Right. There's a really horrible moment as well when the symbiote takes over Michelle Williams. And so, of course, she turns into, like, slinky, sexy Venom, which is not at all sexist in any way. It's painful. <laughs> it's pain, And, of course, he kisses her. It's so painful. It's so dated. It's unbelievable. Would you think... I mean, this film has obviously been in a bit of a development hell for years. Yeah. So do you think they've just worked with the original idea and along the way they haven't updated it enough? It felt like they just had deleted a ton of stuff and just went, now nah, we'll just do this. The dialogue barely exists. It's like, it's like insert joke here, insert explanation here. It's really, really basic. But people went and saw it. That's yeah, so, I know. That's mystifying. What's your number three? Uh, my number three, uh, controversially, oh. is Black Panther. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. So this is Ryan Coogler's first Marvel film. He'd obviously done Creed beforehand. Smashed and Fruitvale it. Station. Um, and what? Fruitvale Station as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously this is Marvel's big smash hit from this year. Yeah. It's their first... $1.3 billion is mm-hmm. made. Their first film with a black lead character. Yeah. Um, an actor. Um, even though Blade yes. had been 20 years before, but that was under... A different studio. So, of this new cinematic Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is the first time a black character has been up front and yeah. center. Now, look, <laughs> production design wise and costume design, I think all the African elements are absolutely exquisite. I love the way that they've taken all those you know they've done they've done their research and they've done the research with the right people they haven't gone oh this looks a bit african we'll put this in they've clearly gone and created um these different tribes in wakanda all based on real african elements and they've integrated it 
all into the fantastical technology that is uh, present in Wakanda. So the weaponry, the suits, the buildings, the palaces, the command center, the cars, the the way that people talk, the way that some of the language. I think it's absolutely brilliant because the great thing about comics is they don't have to be placed in the real world. Hmm. You can take the real world and you can make it fantastical. That's, That's what Batman is. That's what Superman is. That's what... Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and all these cool things. That's what Captain America is. Captain America is just a gung-ho 1940s soldier who just happens to have the super serum and now he is Captain America. Yeah. So you have all these cool real-life things. He's a bit more than that as well, isn't he? Because he's like the nerdy guy. But it's a real-life aspect and then they've embellished on top is what I'm saying. You have all these real-life aspects that have been embellished upon and they become this fantastical thing. And it's great that for Black Panther, the real-life elements are all these African flares, Mm -hmm. all these African elements, the tribalness. Even like the the shields are... Their origins are in African design, but they have like the the energy force field thing. Mm-hmm. So all these really cool things. But if you were to strip away all those cool African elements, all you're left with is a very barely average Marvel superhero movie. Yeah, that really is quite dull. It really is quite dull. T'Challa as a character really fucking dull. I have very little memory of him as a character. I, yeah, he's not. He wasn't interesting as a hero for me. No, not at all. And they, they, they were trying to get him to go on this hero's journey where he gets what he wants, but he always wanted it. It's not like he said, "No, I shall not be the king," and then learns to be the king. He tried to be the king, and then by the end of the film, he is the king. So what's he learn? <laughs> yeah. Nothing. It's not interesting to watch people get the thing that they want. It's usually. You know, the character wants something, but the thing they need is what they actually achieve. He wants and needs to be king, and then they give it to him, which is great for him, but boring to watch. Killmonger, as much as I like Michael B. Jordan, he is so much better than this film. He's an incredibly layered actor, and you watch that in Creed. The, the different dynamics that he has in his own head about what he wants to be and what he thinks he should be is phenomenal to watch. And they carry that over into the sequel. But when a character is just all about, I want all the power, I deserve this. We've seen that kind of bullshit before. Yeah. In three films, Star Wars 1, 2, and 3 <laughs> is just all about, I want to be the Jedi, me, me, me. And it's bullshit and boring to watch. Yeah. I think that the... The sad thing about Black Panther is that it did have a really interesting idea, which was an African-American fighting an African. And that's a really, really interesting kind of idea. And and to say, yeah, okay, what are the differences? What are they fighting about? What do they want? You know, what are their different lives like? And I think that that maybe is an idea for a different kind of film mm. that this film That's didn't... not the film Marvel would, would want it's not, to make. It's not, sadly. No. But actually going back to what you said about <clears throat> how T'Challa doesn't really have much of an arc. He just wants to be king. He is king and then he is king in the end. Yeah. He I... just can't wait to be king. Right, exactly. He just can't wait. But is it, it would be interesting to kind of compare that to Wonder Woman, who is a god. Yeah. She wants to be a hero but she has to learn why it is good to be a hero before yeah. she can do it. And so T'Challa kind of goes through a very, very similar 
journey where he has to learn why and how to be a king rather than just being one. But I think that I think that Chadwick Boseman is just kind of he's such an internal. He's a good actor, but he's so internalized. He's not given a chance to really um, develop that that internal struggle mm. in this film. And it's all, it all feels very surface and it all feels very distracted. Even when they try and bring some depth by having him go into the spirit realm and yeah. everyone's being all Lion King, turning from lions it's really into, Lion King, into isn't humans. It? Yeah. It's incredibly boring. <laughs> it's so boring. I didn't... Do you know what? I didn't hate this film. I'm, I feel like this has been a really, really interesting year for representation in cinema. Mm. And I think that... I just think that this film isn't isn't necessarily for us. It's it's kind of like who's the, the us? So white, white kind of British guys. Yeah. Um, I think that audience uh, audiences this year more than any other year have been ha- like they've been getting films that are so specifically for them, which is fantastic. Yeah. They're not they're mainstream in budget and exposure, but not in their own stories yeah so we've had we've had love simon Mm -hmm. we've had crazy rich asians Mm -hmm. we've had black panther and all three have been enormously successful studio pictures and we'll get we'll get to love simon because clearly it's going to be in one of our favorite films of the year okay maybe um (laughs) but i think they they resonate on an emotional rather than psychological level and i think black panther tipped over into becoming a phenomenon because for so long, black audiences have been starved of this kind of representation mm-hmm. that I'm not saying they are um, forgiving the film's shortcomings. I'm saying they just don't see them because it's an emotional experience for that audience. 100% um, agree. So, yeah. I'm, I'm judging it on the basis of a film, not the social yeah, exactly. aspects. But yes, it is absolutely amazing for the black community yeah. um and I've, I've seen that with my own eyes um yeah my, my friends i'm gonna say i've got some black i've got black friends, friends. yeah but, and and i saw their reaction yeah was a lot of their facebook status well i love this wakanda forever mm-hmm. and that must be so amazing yeah. in the same way that it's great for us to see something like love simon yeah it's amazingly positive for them and it's a hero that all of us can look up to yeah everyone we don't have to you don't have to just be black to look up to black panther and you Mm. don't have to just be white to look up to captain america yeah the values that these characters um operate to are are values that maybe we should all operate to in life Mm. captain america doesn't like bullies yeah that's his thing yeah t'challa wants to honor his father he wants to honor his family and his culture Mm. and that's maybe something everyone can can uh, achieve can, you know you can work towards you can that's how you can live your life but as a film i think it falls flat it does and it's sad that it, it is ultimately kind of sub style over substance it is gorgeous it's mm. beautifully made and it's tried so hard to to be the thing that it should be but the story is it's marvel you know paint by just, paint by numbers it's just Copy and paste, copy yeah. and paste, copy and paste. Which is a shame. Angela Bassett is underused. If you have Angela Bassett in your movie, mm. she has to do something other than cry. 
She has to do something other than cry. Yeah. Daniel Kaluuya had yeah. a little bit of a bigger role he's than her. In it, yeah. But my God, he's one of the best actors out of this country at this moment. Yeah. And he's not a privileged Oxford or Cambridge graduate. He yeah. is a working class lad from a lottery funded drama center. Get him out there in better roles than this. Yeah. I haven't seen Widows yet, but I'm eager to see it. I'm desperate to see that. Um, the clifftop fights were brilliant. Yeah. Gorgeous. Absolutely amazingly well staged and gorgeous to look at. Andy Serkis, it's a shame his character is now dead because it's a really interesting character. Mm. Um, the action scenes, unfortunately, I don't think action is Ryan Coogler's um, strong point. It fell into the things I hate, which is pixels bashing around and I just have to wait till the end of the scene to see <laughs> who won and who didn't win. There wasn't that much style in the action. But then if you look at X-Men, the action isn't great in X-Men, but by X-Men 2, Brian Singer knew how to do it. Mm. So I'm hoping by Black Panther 2, Ryan Coogler will understand yeah. how to have his own rhythm and style. The third act is just Crash Bang Wallop. Yeah. Um, it's um, it's a shame that this film didn't come out ten years ago because if it had come out ten years ago, I think we probably would have would have been having a different conversation. I well, think that for the superhero formula fatigue is mm. ultimately what plays against Black Panther. Yes. So if 100%. it had, if it had you know come out ten years ago, I think it would have been a better film. It would have been seen as a better film. Yeah. It would have been the same film, yeah. but. Because it's an origin story still. A hundred percent, yeah. It just happens that we've met him before in yeah. Civil War. Which is, it's so. almost like backtracking. Yeah. Um, cool, number two for you. My number two is A Wrinkle in Time, which is uh, directed by Ava DuVernay. And it's based on the 1962 novel by um, Madeleine Longley, which is like this really kind of pioneering novel that actually I think got banned from high schools because it was too... Um, like sci-fi or something. It was just like people didn't want it, kids to be reading it. Okay. Um, Is this a film with Oprah? Yeah, it's a film with Oprah and uh, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, I think her name is. Um, and it's kind of an, a really honourable stab at kind of like heightened, strange sci-fi. Mm -hmm. It's very similar in, in feel to Tomorrowland. Oh, which is okay. that George I like Clooney that. thing. Yeah, which was cool. Brad Bird, based on the right. area in Disneyland parks. Yeah, so mm. it's, that, it's that kind of Disney, big budget, glossy Disney thing. Whimsical. And it's, yeah, it's whimsical as anything. <laughs> but it's also just impenetrable. Ah. Just what is going on? I, I went to see it with Bobby Brooke, who was okay. our... Our oh, Mean Girls and Annihilation yeah. episodes. And we saw it in Peckham in the cinema that was full of kind of like six-year-old kids. And I was having trouble understanding what was going on. So I have no idea what they thought was going but on. Visually, was it good? Because sometimes, you know, with those films... Visually, it is kind of cool. They can just pay attention to the visuals and the talking they don't need to pay attention to. Yeah. Some of the visuals are really cool. But also, some of the um, the staging is shockingly bad. Like, there's there's a moment where the lead character... Um, Meg, she's in her back garden. And then we have a shot of two of these teenage girls from her school who are like bullies and hate her looking out a window. Yeah. And we're supposed to think that they can see into her back garden from that window, but we're given no point of reference so for where anybody's is house is. Clear. So it was like, I'm sorry, what the fuck is going on? It's just weird. Um, but the six-year-old kid wouldn't 
think that's weird. They would just, they would connect the no, dots. That's true. But I mean, is it made for six-year-olds? Because it's all about inter, inter um, spatial travel and like weird virtual realities. And it's a really, really weird film. And I really wanted to like it because I think Ava DuVernay is a really great uh, positive force what in film she done before she did a film called selma which was okay, the yeah. you know the yeah, yeah the civil March. rights yeah. yeah um which is great and she's been very very vocal about you know having um diverse voices in filmmaking yeah and, and that and it, which is fantastic and i fully support that but she's made a really not very good film um is it is this is obviously a studio film it's a studio film is this her first studio film? yes so is is that do you think that could be the element? I think so. I think she's got lost in that system yeah. a little bit. And it's happened to the best directors. Yeah. Um, so it's not her fault. Well, look at anyone that's connected to Star Wars these days. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's just not a good film. It's so um, kind of heart on sleeve, kind of just spoon feeding you syrup. And Is it long? Yeah, it's really long. I mean, it felt really long. It's it might like be, might be a short film. It's actually like an hour forty, but it's, uh, it feels really long. But an hour forty doesn't seem to be well it, by today's standards. An hour forty doesn't seem to be long enough to adapt a, a novel. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's just one of those films where it its ambition was too too big for actually what it delivered like um, so, the Wachowski's last film the oh Jupiter Cloud Atlas? no oh, Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending Jupiter Ascending yeah that was awful <laughs> fucking dire should we talk about Suspiria well I haven't, done my, your... no, I haven't done my number two oh, yet oh sorry let's talk so, about your number two so my number two Mamma Mia Here We Go Again oh no did you see it no but I've got the disc from someone tomorrow you seen the first one I hated the first one so, so much. I saw up until Piers Brosnan started singing and I was, just, <laughs> I was just done with this. I was already done before then, but that was like... I watched it on Christmas Day in the coffin three years ago. My sister bought it for me for Christmas. And, we and sat now and you don't talk to your sister anymore. Half, half way through the film, my sister turned to me and said, this is so good, isn't it? And I was like, <laughs> oh. Now, the only reason I saw this at the cinema, because I would not normally see this, my friend Lee... Um, hi Lee hi Lee he wanted to go see it and I said right I'll come bye Lee <laughs> bye Lee and I should have known because the last film that he made me go see was the third Bridget Jones oh that's film. a pretty good one that's pretty funny no it is not <laughs> but Mamma Mia Here We Go Again is a cinematic hate crime <laughs> something this bad can only be orchestrated to be this bad oh, no. and bland. No one sets out to make bad films, but at least when people have made bad films, there's something in there that you can sort of kind of see a good film. In this, it is so bland to the point where everything has been designed to play to the widest possible audience. So because it's got all these different personalities it of course has no personality mm. it has no focus everything character and charm has been completely stripped away and what you're left with is a very pastel dull colored and i, I can't even say story because there's barely a story to speak of it is and it is the whitest film that came out last year as well so isn't it? white yeah it is so so white but it's it's and I know it's been said, it's just songs strung together with the flimsiest 
of narrative. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. You know, musicals don't have to be that way. And I know the story or lack thereof is built around the songs. There are other examples where it's been successful, like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm -hmm. But Mamma Mia 2 or Mamma Mia Here We Go Again is just a prime example of Lambrini-infused hen party filmmaking that I hope they don't do another. These are some of the greatest pop songs of the last 50 years, and yet they are rendered bland, karaoke versions sung by actors and actresses who have no right singing them in private, let alone when the cameras are running. (laughs) Even though I've said all of that, it's not my worst film. Oh God, what's your worst film? Well, let's talk about Suspiria first, because that's your worst worst film, but that's only my number four worst film yeah okay i feel like i've because i've missed so many films this year i feel like my list of the worst films everything came out in january (laughs) yeah well they're not as bad as everyone's saying um yeah suspiria so i saw the original um by dario Dario argento Argento. yeah which is like 70 77 it came out soundtrack by goblin yeah (laughs) Uh, so it's a camp classic from 1977. It's really about a, gory. About a girl who goes to um, a undisclosed German dance school and it turns out it's a coven of witches. Yeah. But it's visually, it's brilliant. Yeah. The original. It's all it's, kind of neon colors. It's like rain. a black and white German expressionist movie writ large in colors. Yeah. So it's, it's really fun. Fucking mental. Yeah. Camp classic. A little bit boring, very, very dated. <laughs> Crazy death scenes. But it's the kind of film that has found a new audience with midnight screenings, very uh, sort of um, retro second wind. Mm-hmm. It is what it is and it's yeah. balmy. Yeah, it is. Like it used to be that you only, you'd only heard of Suspiria if you were of a particular horror crowd. Yes. Yeah. So, you know... I heard of it years ago, obviously. Mm. But a lot of people would, would know, you know, when the new film came out, they would never have heard of Suspiria and no idea what it even is. No, and so, watching this new one, you would never think that there was a film before yeah. because it's so far removed. Yeah. So it's directed by Luca Guadagnino, who directed Call, Call Me By Your Name. Yes. He did A Bigger Splash. Mm-hmm. I Am and Love. I Am Love, which I love that film too. Mm-hmm. And so I was very excited for this because he brings a certain level of filmmaking to everything he does. Mm -hmm. It's always extremely considered. It's art house in kind of a beautifully visual way. He's always got an amazing cast. It's a European flair as well. Exactly. Like he he thinks about a film top to bottom the whole way through. And so, you know, handing him Dance School of Witches, you're just like, I, have, I genuinely have no idea what that is going to be, but I'm damn excited for it. And but, then I watched it. But the problem is, when an indie film director has a big hit and then suddenly the studios say, hey, what do you want to do? Here's a, big, here's a blank check. Go, yeah. do, go make a film. Make film, please. We've seen it before. They, they come back with self-indulgent stuff that never succeeds. Nicholas Wines in Reflin made big with Drive and he went off. He could have done anything, mm. but he went and did Only God Forgives. Which nobody saw. I can watch it, but it is incredibly self-indulgent. Visually yeah. beautiful, it has no soul. <laughs> Gus Van Sant made it big with Goodwill Hunting and then what did he do? He went and did a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho, which we have discussed on episode 61, I think it was. 62 maybe. I love it. 
I think it's brilliant, but it is so self-indulgent. Yeah, it is. Yeah. He has clearly said, right, now's my chance. I can do my Suspiria, yeah. the film that no one was asking for. And I it- can do this. And he does it lots of times. It's so long. So fucking long. It's really long. It's baggy as anything. It doesn't... The last half an hour finally goes crazy and it's not good. No. Um, It doesn't doesn't invest really in any of the relationships. So you're supposed to feel this kind of frisson between Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton. Mm -hmm. There's There's a suggestion of a potential love story between them. But the film abandons that as quickly as it starts to suggest it it has this really, really odd kind of framing-ish device where there's a German um, psychiatrist, isn't it? Like psychotherapist, Joseph Klemperer, also played by Tilda Swinton. Hello, more indulgence. (laughs) She is buried under um, prosthetics. She looks like Rupert Murdoch. She does, yeah. But we follow that character throughout the film as he goes on this weird bumbling kind of pseudo investigative trail that yeah. leads nowhere leads. Um, even when he steps in and actually manages to speak to one of the students from the school she's like ah fuck off yeah and that's it um look i 100 percent support filmmakers for making the films they want to make yeah the problem is if you make a film that is overlong and boring what have you achieved because no one's going to enjoy it there is only one interesting scene in this film. There's only a, one scene that fulfills the promise of what of him doing this brilliant film. Brilliant dance scene where Dakota Johnson is dancing or being instructed to dance by Tilda Swinton and then upstairs in Tilda another dance... Tilda has touched her feet to make them glow a bit. Yes. Yeah. And then upstairs in another dance studio, one of the rejected girls is being twisted out of shape in conjunction with how the girl downstairs is moving. Yeah. So the girl downstairs is unwittingly and unknowingly killing someone above her and it's brilliant brutal it's it's brutal the prosthetics and the cgi is seamless it is a brilliant brilliant set piece and it is the only moment of this film that you think this is brilliant this warrants this film i saw this film in berlin Oh, cool. I went to the Sony Center at Potsdamer Plaza. I saw it there, or Potsdamer Platz, as they say. Uh-huh. And I thought, this will be really cool. The film is set in Berlin. It's set in 1983. So there's the idea of the West against the East, and there's the Berlin Wall. I'm seeing it at a cinema, which is pretty much built on the wall line. Whoa. You know, there's a, there's a section of the wall outside the cinema. This is going to be really special. And I've never looked at my watch so many times <laughs> in a film. Yeah. Never. I've never looked at my watch well, so many times. Because the film doesn't say anything. No. It doesn't say anything about the war, about the wall. You know, the, the dance studio is built against the wall. It's facing yeah. the wall in Berlin. And it doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about um, female relationships. It doesn't say anything about friendship. It doesn't say anything about women in power, dancing. It doesn't say anything. Running alongside the dance which storyline they keep talking about the Bader Meinhof yeah. uh, terrorist group, but there's no connection seemingly between what they're doing and what the other guys are doing. Yeah. It's like two films completely separated, which I guess now that I'm saying that, that's sort of like life between life in the West Berlin and <laughs> life in East Germany. He wishes that was the thing. <laughs> I wish that was it, yeah. but that's not it at all. It's, it's a mess. They start with uh, 
Chloe Grace Moretz, her yeah. story. Then she disappears for two hours. There's a character who kills herself in the in the in the food hall and then disappears, and they never mention anything like that again. Tilda Swinton is far too obvious a choice to play yeah. the the head of the school. She's cold. She's authoritative. She's it's her most boring role. I think incredibly boring. Yeah. It's so she, obvious. She's not an obvious choice to play the old man. <laughs> she's not. And she she plays it warm and whimsical and, and, and there's some empathy there. So that is something we don't usually see with her. Mm. And then she's not needed as the ultimate baddie witch, no. Mother Marcos. No. And, and to be honest, I didn't even realise it was her until I think maybe you pointed that out to me oh, really? via text. I think. I just, I was, I wasn't let down by it. I just really wish it could have been something really special oh i just feel even even if dakota johnson had um had more about her because we're suddenly at the end of the film spoiler stop listening if you haven't seen it yet um we're suddenly told that actually she's been planning this all along yeah. and she's like the big witch head witch but blah, that's, blah blah that's that's the story from the original film look yeah. the original film is less than 90 minutes yeah. this is two and a half hours so the the whatever they've added has completely taken away from the core story yeah which is some witches witches which is witches someone is sent someone arrives at the school and they know she was coming and they've had a plan for her all along. Mm-hmm. That story is completely lost with all this other bullshit. Yeah. And also it seems to be a dance school for people who can't dance. All they do is flip their hair around and slap their thighs. That's dancing. That's all they do. Fancy walking. The bit where she's like, Tilda's trying to teach her how to jump high. I was like, <laughs> good God. It's gymnastics. So my number one okay. is Solo, a Star Wars story. Really? Really? Oh, wow. Okay. So it's the Star Wars prequel no one wanted, directed by a film director no one likes, or at least, oh. not, since, at least not since the 90s. Come on. Starring an actor no one knows, released on a date that no one knew about. <laughs> and it's a shame because up until this point, since Star Wars came back in 2015, they've, been, they've kind of been flying high. Mm. You know, The Force Awakens was obvious, but it was a great way for Star Wars to be Star Wars again. Rogue One was dirty and it was gritty and it felt like a bit of a 70s film at times. Flawed but fun. Flawed but fun, but tonally great. Yeah. The Last Jedi, the good in that film, absolutely outweighs the shite. Yeah. And it was, it was almost like a fresh take on Star Wars and it was leading the series in a new direction mm-hmm. that wasn't just repeating what came before. And it visually, it was great. It was the best looking one since Empire. Yeah. Well, The Last Jedi kind of unstitches a lot of the mythology of Star Wars. Yes. Which really pissed off a lot of people. But, but you know, you've got to do that. We're what, eight films in mm. of the main series. So you've got to do something different. It's just a shame that Solo took that running streak and just plowed it right into the ground. Mm. I think it fell victim to the same thing that the Star Wars prequels did. Because Solo is a prequel. Yeah. It is set in between episode three and Rogue One. Somewhere in between there, this film happens. So the Empire have already taken over. But it fell victim to the same things. It's just connect the dot filmmaking. Han gets his name in a really piss poor weak way. Yeah. 
Han meets Chewie. Han meets Lando, who is completely underused. Yeah, he's great, though. Han meets the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Han completes the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs, question mark. And that was a really boring sequence. I didn't even know that that was the Kessel Run until afterwards, because it's really ambiguous. They don't really mention it. They don't really, they don't tell you exactly what the, the Kessel Run is, do they? No. You kind of, you see that he's in this kind of smoky tunnel in space. To me, it looked like when Bill and Ted time hop mm. and you see the phone booth going down the, the, the avenues of time. Yeah. It looked just like that. I think some things are just best, to, best left to legend. Like the prequels should have just been left as they are. I'm punching my microphone by accident. I think this solo story should have just been left. Okay, I I liked this 50-50. I can see why you didn't like it. I totally understand that. I feel like the last half of the film especially tried so hard to tie everything into A New Hope and that story, even though he looks nothing like Harrison Ford. So we can't possibly believe that suddenly he's going to be meeting Princess Leia in you know a year or two. Yeah. Like, I feel like if it was going to be solo, a solo Star Wars story, it should have been a solo Star Wars story. Yeah. It should have just had the courage of its convictions and told a story about this character that didn't attempt to tie into the rest of the the Star Wars universe. Yeah. Um, So the first half of the film, I actually thought was really fun. And um, I'm not Amelia Clarke's number one fan. I thought she was okay. I thought Tanya Newton was fun. Sad that she got off so early. No reason for her to die. Well, actually, you know, Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote this with his son, he said that it was a mistake, actually, to kill off that character because after they'd cast Tandy Newton, mm-hmm. who's married to the director of uh, Mamma Mia 2, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, Mamma Mia 2 had a director. Uh, old Parker. <laughs> um, he, uh, Lawrence Kasdan said that as soon as they cast Tandy Newton, they were like, oh, fuck she's too good for this character but even even the fact that they're getting rid of tandy newton is is obviously shit to watch but the character made there was no reason for the character to sacrifice herself because it didn't achieve anything well it's, it was that character cared too much about the rebellion and too much mm. about being anti-establishment to kill herself for such a small fry thing no that's made true. no sense massive in, in inconsistencies throughout this film Suddenly Han can speak Kashik. He speaks to Chewie in Chewie's language. Oh, yeah. But we never see him do that in episodes four, five, and six. And Han was a mm. member of the Imperial Flight Academy, but never mentioned it <laughs> in episodes four, five, and six. Yeah. There was only one moment that... And I literally sat forward in my seat because I loved it so much. Yeah. And that was the appearance of Darth Maul. Oh, Yeah. But the problem is... <laughs> it's not a finished film with that ending. That too. But when you introduce a character from the worst Star Wars film, oh. and that's the best moment in your oh, new God. Star Wars film, your new Star Wars film becomes the worst <laughs> Star Wars film. Oh, poor Solo. It's been, so, it's been so hard done by. It should have been better. They should have learned from their mistakes. It could have been better. And because it wasn't, and because they didn't, it is the worst film of 2018. Wow, okay. So let's go on the top five films. Your number five, Joshua. Okay, my number five is the Christmas present that I gave you right 
two days no like last week <laughs> yeah because <laughs> we're not recording these episodes no, on the exactly. same day no we don't do that um it is a fantastic woman okay and uh i won't spoil it for you because you haven't seen it yet oh yes don't spoil it because i probably watch maybe i'll watch it tonight yeah, I do. Or it's... I'll go to the gym. Okay. Well, it's a... Oh, no. Tonight is New Year's Eve. I'm going out. Oh, with me, actually, aren't you? You got your Bobby's? Yeah. Oh, Bobby uh... Brooke, who was on our, our Annihilation and Mean Girls story. Yeah. Um, episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, a Fantastic Woman. It's a Chilean drama, and it's mm. directed by Sebastian Lelio. Lelio. And it's just a really... Oh, you butcher the Chilean language. Lelio. And it's just great. It does everything right. In terms of writing, in terms of telling a transgender story, mm-hmm. um, it's very, is very. Is he trans? Um, I don't. The filmmaker himself isn't trans, but he did hire a trans actress, Daniela Vega, That's and a she plays step in the right direction. She plays Marina, who's mm-hmm. the the transgender woman at the centre of the story. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you. It does some really fun things that are very clever. Um, it makes you the mystery. There's a mystery in it that makes mm-hmm. you think one thing, and it turns out something else which okay. is very very clever um and it's just it's got some lovely little moments that are kind of flights of fantasy which is marina escaping all this horrific stuff that you see her go through so much um prejudice against her um and there are little moments where she escapes into her fantasy world that could have been mamma mia here we go again yeah type stuff but actually are really beautifully handled and work as kind of visual metaphors, there's this great, there's great stuff going on. Um, I would look forward to watching that one. Yes, yeah, so that's my number five. What's yours? My number five, just for the sheer enjoyment I had seeing it twice, is Avengers Infinity War. Oh, wow. Okay. You've seen it twice now? I saw it twice. I mean, I saw it with you and then I saw it with Michael. Oh, okay. No, I didn't. I saw it on my own. What am I talking about? You saw it once with someone and once on your own? Yeah. Huh. Um regardless of the fact that it as i said in our episode um it feels like a 10 episode omnibus of the 10th season of a marvel yeah cinematic universe tv show it is just balls to the wall great fun it's so good if you want to sit down in the cinema for two and a half hours and have fun you go see avengers infinity war but we won't talk about it too long here we spoke about on episode 38 so go and listen to that it's a full hour of us pulling that film apart and loving, loving it certain aspects not like in other aspects but it's on my list of top five have you seen the trailer for the next one i have and i have issues with the name Endgame. i think it's a really cheap name and cheap okay. title for a film Endgame makes me think of like a shitty straight to dvd <laughs> film maybe sixth or seventh down the line in a series of film like Highlander mm-hmm. Endgame mm-hmm. Hellraiser Endgame it's weird yeah. Shawshank Redemption Endgame <laughs> my, I had a friend years ago who said that Shawshank Redemption sounds like a shitty straight to DVD sequel for a film called Shawshank <laughs> oh. well actually I didn't really feel strongly either way about the title of Endgame. But then my boyfriend Tom did some research mm-hmm. and actually it's the perfect title because the Endgame is a, a chess term. Yeah. Which means, I mean, you've both lost you both lost um, things on each side. You're both basically trying to scrabble for a win with the pieces you have left on mm-hmm. the board. It's ugly. It's messy. 
and you're only going to win if someone else fucks up basically yeah so it is actually a great title but also the word endgame has been has been used as dialogue in a couple of previous films has it yes oh i didn't know that so tony stark has said endgame at one point Mm. um dr strange said endgame did in infinity war so it, it makes sense it's just it's a really cheap overused term Right, it's, it's kind of a cliche now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, which is strange because, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, by and large, has avoided cliches. Mm. Um, your number four, Joshua. My number four is Lady Bird, ah, okay. directed by Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. I just love this film. It's just so... It does ev- it does everything with such a lightness of touch and it, it feels so honest. Um, and I just loved the relationship between um, Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf. I just thought it was hilarious and just brilliantly observed the way that teenage girls interact with their mothers. Like, I've seen my sister interacting with my mum and it's hilarious. Um, you know, the, the moment where they're shopping for her dress for the dance and they're bickering and arguing and having like falling out over something and then suddenly that she's like oh look this dress is great oh my god it's amazing i love it and they just get over it immediately yeah, i get that it's just such a touching lovely story and timothy's i love he's great in it timothy timothy but he's he's a completely different character to yeah. his call me by your name character bad boy timothy he's bad actually sexier in this <laughs> he looks bit, and he looks a bit older yeah so you're allowed to like fancy him a little bit you could fancy him beforehand he was like 20 when you when he made call me by your name yeah i know it still feels a bit wrong though what's your number four my number four is mission Impossible fallout i still haven't seen it i know so it's meant to be the best one right it's one of the best. Okay. And that's strange because this is number six in the series that is 22 years old. Yeah. We've spoken about episode one through two, five on episode 48. Yeah, we did. Of Torn Stubbs. We collaborated with the cinema. Yeah. So have a listen to that. But this is, I think this is Christopher McQuarrie reclaiming himself as a filmmaker. Mm. He obviously wrote The Usual Suspects. He directed Way of the Gun. He's Directed a little bit over the way, the Jack Reachers um, and the last Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. But this is the first one that feels like it's taking the grammar of film and using it well. Mm. The others are action films with an amazing heart. This feels like a film. Um, there's some. Is great... it like a complete film? In it, so it tells its own story. Because um, the mission no, Impossible it is a it is the first time they've done a direct sequel. Yeah. So you have to see Rogue Nation, otherwise you won't know the relationships. Okay. But even so, it has so much heart and so much charisma, uniqueness, no, no, talent. talent yeah. This film, it is, it is, it is quite phenomenal. And the and the great thing about this film and also the other Mission Impossible films is the stunts look real because they are yeah. real. Yeah. It is... Tom Cruise hurt himself doing one. It is insane, the things you see. And I've, I've never had this kind of experience in the cinema where I have literally been so tense and on the edge of my seat. I was literally on the edge of my seat and my palms were so sweaty. Oh my God. Because of the climax, the, fi- the finale scenes, the finale stunts. It is phenomenal. Okay, wow. It is brilliant what it, is it builds the world a bit more but it yeah. also pays homage to things from previous films okay so one of them is very subtle uh-huh. 
but another one comes completely out of the blue and you are it, it's just mind blowing you fucking love that moment is it John Voight <laughs> <laughs> it's just his head in a jar okay is um is Tom Cruise actually does 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 Ethan Hunt develop in any interesting meaningful way yes and no, because the thing about these kind of films is your hero kind of has to stay reasonably the same. Mm. Well, because um, in Mission Impossible 3, he's this kind of broken man who's desperately try to, trying to survive and pull his family back together. Mm. But the rest of the films are a bit jokier and a bit more cartoony. It's less cartoony than Ghost Protocol. Yeah. It's more this serious tone of rogue nation okay so they're very much like a grown part up one thriller. and part two of the same film okay um because it's the same bad guy it's the yeah. same um group around him it's the same team um elsa is obviously in it uh-huh. um but yes he does develop to a point but they can't you know bond never develops he has to remain the same because we then need to have him be back at moment zero for the next film mm. But the ideas that they present do progress. Hmm. In terms of action, in terms of heart and character, this is one of the better of the franchise films this year. Wow, okay. Cool. Yeah. Your number three? My number three is Molly's Game, directed by and written by Aaron Sorkin, which mm-hmm. is, is based on the book Molly's Game by Molly Bloom, who she kind of she became a, an FBI target for running an underground poker. Yes. kind of industry she runs these games for hollywood celebrities there's michael cena C- sarah what's his name michael sarah michael sarah michael yeah. sarah who apparently is based on somebody very famous but i can't say for libel reasons um yeah but they say right do they i'm, I'm asking you question mark do they say in the they film? don't say who it is no oh, they, they who say is he like, based on then or he's based on a hollywood actor well, i'm not going to say because we might get in trouble we won't who is it well no i'm not going to say am i <laughs> who is it i want to know i'll tell you off air um yeah it's just such a great film you don't see characters like molly bloom in in big films like okay. this she's such a great fascinating flawed character and and you're just kind of like chastain Jessica chastain right. is amazing and idris elba and idris elba right. is great in it as well yeah mm-hmm. he's really good but she she was like a world class skier with Olympic dreams. Oh, so she was famous before. Yeah, and oh. then she busted something like her back or her knee or something, and she just ended up thinking about going to law school, ending up um, working at a club, and then just kind of like getting into this this gambling thing. Um, and you see her changing as a character, and then her relationship with her dad, played by a really good Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> It's, it's just, a shame these days you have to I know. prefix. Yeah, I really good. Oh, he's really good in this one. Yeah. But it's it's two hours, 20 minutes of pure joy. It's like Aaron Sorkin. You know, you know it's an Aaron Sorkin film because the dialogue is beautifully done. Yeah. And you don't notice the time. Like This is his first film as a director, right? Yeah, and he nails it. He just... Well, he's been around. You know, he's learned a lot. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. You know, he's watched Fincher direct. Yeah. He's watched Danny Boyle direct. He knows. He's watched all those amazing directors on the West Wing. And they did, what, nine seasons oh, of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Eight seasons? Yeah. So, so he's watched... been around. He, you know, he's probably absorbed it all by osmosis. Yeah. Watch it. 
I will. It's great. My number three is A Prayer Before Dawn. Oh, right. Okay. This is directed by Jean-Stéphane Sauvoir. I'm, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that Sounds wrong. Sounds exotic. And Joe Cole, who was apparently in Skins, one of the oh. later seasons of Skins, a young British actor. He plays Billy Moore, who is a boxer. Based on Billy Moore's autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, and he falls into drug use in Thailand. And he gets sent to prison for drug possession and possession of a firearm. So now he's in the Thai prison system. And we see his experience of surviving this. And it's, it's a very violent and arguably inhumane prison system. You know, no one has their own cell or one or two to a cell. They are just sleeping in large pens. Mm. Like in Bridget Jones' Ed- Edge of Reason when she goes to jail in Thailand. <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> but because he's a boxer, he has this insatiable need to fight. He oh. has this insatiable anger. And he's clearly a very troubled young man. So he turns to Thai fighting, like mixed martial arts, and takes part in a competition and uh, as a way of battling his demons. And it's shot on location in the uh, Nakhon Fatham prison. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. In Thailand... Um, which kind of gives it this authentic weight that I don't think shooting in a studio with some green screen would give the film. Joe Cole, I think, has completely secured his future with this role. He has this insane bulked body and he looks phenomenal, but he has this baby face. Hmm. So there's this constant battle between the fact that he has this man's body, but he's still a child. Mm. It's completely at odds. And he's this child trying to make it in this incredibly violent male world. Not just the prison, but the, the boxing and the tie fighting. And he's got this constant seething anger underneath the surface that at times he, he just releases mm. and he, he fights back. Because you can imagine prison is... Not the nicest place to be. Not, not pleasant. So it's, it's brutal and it's very realistic and it's very physical. And it's, a lot of it is in the Thai language, but with no subtitles. Mm. So you feel, you feel as displaced as he does. It's, it's a, a clearly a way to make us feel like we don't know what's going on. But in yeah. a weird way, we kind of follow with him mm. and we're never bored. We're never kept, we're kept at arm's length. When we're not always in the dark, it's very engaging, and it's a, it's a really, it, it's a testament to the writers and the directors of what they are showing us and what they're keeping back is just enough, and it's great storytelling, it's brilliant visually uh, constructed. Um, I was really surprised by it. I, I didn't know why what it what it was about. I thought maybe it was like a Channing Tatum <laughs> fight movie. Yeah. Um, but it is actually. At its heart, a a character piece, and you kind of feel for this guy because he is a fish out of water. He's an English guy in a Thai prison, and the things that he sees and the demons that he's battling, those things can only make his demons worse. So it's this constant thing of pushing that rock up the hill, and then it all just tumbling back on him, and then him trying again. Hmm. It's a uh, it's an underdog film, and it is phenomenal. And so who directed it? Jean-Stéphane oh, right. yeah, Savoir. Yeah. I don't know what else I don't know what he's done. I don't know what else he's done. 
Your number two? My number two is Upgrade, directed by Lee Wanell. Okay, I have not seen that. Um, oh, you should. It, it's awesome. It's got this great kind of cyberpunk 80s Robocop vibe. New to Romancer. It. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's basically like, it's, it's what they wanted to do with Venom. Because right. it's about, it's set in the, the near future. It's about a guy called Grey Trace, who's played by Logan Marshall Green. And he gets into a car accident. He becomes paralyzed from the neck down. And he, he agrees to have this um, prototype chip implanted into his cranium or into his mm-hmm. spine, um, which is called STEM. It's an AI chip. And it gives him back his motor functions, but the, the chip does it for him, essentially. Right. And the chip has a voice, voiced by an Aussie actor called Simon... Oh, Simon Maiden. Okay. And um, they have this hilarious interplay. So it's kind of very much like a, a weird sci-fi buddy relationship thing that's going on that Venom really tried to do in the last 20 minutes. But this film does it for the whole film, and right. it's really well done. Um and also there's there's moments where um gray allows this chip to take full control over his motor functions and lets him like fight bad guys <laughs> and so his body is fighting really quite um aggressively and but logan marshall green's face is kind of horrified by what his body is doing and it's such so a, it, it, is it a comedy it's that's it's kind of plays in Comedic dark elements. dark comedy yeah okay. and he is fantastic in it like logan marshall green i forgot what else he was in apart from prometheus where he's got a really thankless role as i don't know who he is numira pass's boyfriend he's very attractive he was in the oc he was actually in spider-man homecoming but i've forgotten what he played he's just like some random guy i think i don't know but he's he's like he's so good in this it's a kind of like a revelation just how good he is in this. Okay, so this is maybe him securing his future. Possibly, yeah. So that's my number two. What's your number number two? two? My number two is Phantom Thread. Oh yeah, that was a good film. This is Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. His most accessible film in a decade. Yeah. After The Master, which is great, but it's very much a character piece and there's not much story. Mm -hmm. And Inherent Vice, which is just impenetrable. Mm. Did not enjoy that one. This is... Brilliant. And, and PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, he feels like a filmmaker out of time. He doesn't live in 2018. He just released his film here. Yeah. Phantom Thread is a story of Reynold Woodcock, with a funny name. Yeah. And he's a world-renowned dressmaker, dress designer, who makes his dresses in his house in um, central London in the 60s. And he's very closed off. And then he goes for a weekend away somewhere, meets Alma, and she kind of integrates herself into his life. It has the feelings and the makings of a film that could have been made in the 60s or the 70s. And it's very intoxicating, this film, much in the way that, you know, the mushrooms that play a key part towards the end of the film are intoxicating to him. It feels like a Fairy tale in disguise. Mm. It's um, but not you know, not I, a Disney one, more like yeah. a, a grim fairy tale. I can't really remember what the story is. All I know is that it's kind of like him getting his way, mm. and he's very rigid and unyielding. And he kind of he has this wife, but he just puts her to work in his in his job and doesn't really care for her on a human level. He's kind of like his girlfriend Alma, the the, right. the, the, the waitress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's he's an. Un, he's unemotional to the point of aggravation. 
Yes. Like he only cares about the dresses. Mm. He couldn't give a shit about a human being. Yes. Which is... But both... the dresses represent yeah, something else. Yeah. And that's the phantom element. Because mm. there is a ghost story element. But not a ghost story in the woman Sixth in black. Sense. Yeah, the sixth sense. Or the woman in black way. It's it, it, sense. It's, it's a ghost story in the sense of people that we've lost. How do we then continue making sure that how, how do we continue their their lives and their memory how do mm. we stop them from flittering away to nothing because clearly his sister played by leslie manville yeah she has gotten over the death of the person who is the phantom i guess yeah. and he hasn't she's cold he's cold but he has a warmness to him that is connected to mama as yeah. he says um it's not a major part of the film but it's almost like a overbearing weight mm. on the relationships but their relationship is hilarious their relationship is, is, is brilliant. brilliant and you don't even realize they're brother and sister yeah. until maybe halfway it's through like, the who film is she? what's she doing here she clearly runs the place yeah and she is the you know she's the tough one she's facilitating his she's enabling his behavior yeah 100 yeah um but it is very fairytale like you know he's a broken crooked man living in a tall narrow house mm. and he's infiltrated by a maiden who um he t she turns his world on its head and then in fairytale fashion she finds the mushrooms and then she uses those oh does she kill him or she makes him she sick? doesn't she doesn't kill him yeah she makes him Sick. I've forgotten all because I saw this almost a year ago now. So I you saw it on my birthday. Ah, uh, we went to see it for my birthday. Did we? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. But Daniel Day Lewis is this is probably his most subtly controlled performance. Yeah. He's not screaming and chewing up the the sets as he usually does. It's a very very controlled performance, and it's his last ever performance apparently. Yeah. Leslie Manville is so cold and so fierce and just riveting you, you do not want to mess with her yeah and the color palette is so muted yeah. it feels like a black and white film but it's not it's just very pale grays very pale blues very off whites it feels like a 60s film because it's shot on that great film it looks great mm. i think it's pta reminding people that he is such a cinematic craftsman he is an auteur Maybe yeah. one of the, the last we've got left that didn't come up in the 70s. Yeah. He is not someone that goes, right, I'm going to go do a Marvel film. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go do Star Wars. He is an independent filmmaker who gets films released by the studios, um, like mini studios, not like Universal. He's not like Christopher Nolan, is he? No, he's not. But he is definitely up there with Kubrick and Lynch. Mm -hmm. This film is just exquisite. Yeah. But it's it not the best film of 2018. Are we going to have the same best film? I don't know. What's your What's your number one? My number one is Love, Simon. That one actually hasn't hit my top five. Why? It would have been in somewhere between 10 and 6. Okay, fine. I, um, I think because this film had such a strong emotional resonance for me. Mm -hmm. And I... I love high school movies. Like, I've grown up watching high school movies. I love them so much. But I've never seen one like this, which even though I was never an American teen, I never went to American high school, you know, I didn't have gorgeous, beautiful American friends, this still felt like my story. Like, mm -hmm. this is a guy coming to terms with his sexuality 
Um, he's not necessarily somebody who is, um, you know, has had an awful upbringing. He's not traumatized really in any way. He's just a regular guy who happens to be going through this thing. Um, and the film doesn't turn it into melodrama. It doesn't, um, it doesn't excuse anything. It just lets it play out. Mm. Um, and I think it's great. And Nick Robinson is fantastic. I love him. He's amazing. I love his coat. I want that fur lined <laughs> denim jacket. Yeah, it's been, I've only seen it once this year. I want to buy it. You can't buy it, buy it on Blu-ray in the why? UK. I have no idea why. How it's bizarre. fucking ridiculous. Sort it out, 20th Century Fox. Come on, 20th Century Fox. Release it on Blu-ray. Sort I'm not, it out. I'm not buying a, a DVD of it. I, I did enjoy this. I loved it. Well, we did a whole episode about it. We did the whole episode. Yeah. It is uh, Torn Stubbs, episode 39. So feel free to go and listen to Whoa. the episode there. Episode 38 and 39 are two films that are in our top fives of the year. It seems that that was Easter a good time, week. Easter time or May was a good time yeah. to go to the cinema. My number one yeah. is Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos. <laughs> I, present, I pronounce that correctly. Why did you just give me a Nicolas Cage crazy face when you said that name? <laughs> uh, so this is the Nicolas Cage film that was meant to just be straight to on demand, but it got caught up in such a, a wind off the back of Sundance that it got given a cinematic release. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, plus the Blu-ray was got out there quick because mm-hmm. they wanted to capitalize on it. And it's, it's picked up a lot of steam and it's, it's suddenly become this cultural thing amongst, you know, the geeky film circles. It's become a cult classic almost mm. immediately. Whoa. So it's got Nicolas Cage in fine form. He plays Red, who's a woodsman living in rural somewhere, America somewhere, where it's just like woods. And he's seeking revenge on the cult, this religious, crazy religious cult that murdered his wife, Mandy. Okay. Played by Andrea Riseborough. um, Yes. Yeah. Who is like the chameleon in Hollywood. Like she's in everything, but you'll never recognize her twice. I don't know who she is. Yeah, there you go. So I've not seen anything quite like this. It's born out of the early 80s VHS culture, and also uh, paperback horror and fantasy novels of the 80s and the 70s. Which it seems like it's quite late to, though, because those things that were huge five or six years ago. It does it in a very interesting way. Right. And I'm going to come on to that, because that's the reason why I've chosen it as my number one, because of the way that it does this. It also has a hint of the cinema of John Carpenter, a bit of early Sam Raimi, um, but also just generally video nasties, all with kind of an art school experimental attitude. So it's it's kind of this feverish nightmare dreamscape that is presented with all these amazing color casts. Um, so at times it's just red and it's almost like threatening to lose detail in faces it becomes like quite you know photographically hot Mm. it's just burning out um and it's it's like this hypnotic surreal unfolding thing that just gets inside of you and Hmm. just doesn't leave it's it's insane it's very poetic but at the same time incredibly relevant and accessible but also it's completely inaccessible (laughs) it's this weird dichotomy where it is just all these things 
all at once. So it's shot on film on an old Alexa camera. And the grain that you see is almost like another character. This film wouldn't exist without grain. Mm. And the director says that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that the, the choice of how you shoot a film, if you do it on film or digital, and if you do digital, what kind of digital? And if you shoot film, what kind of film? It's just as important, those decisions are just as important as the design choices or the costume design choices or the production design choices or the edit choices. It's just that we have so many choices in terms of the medium now that they're just another tool for storytelling. Mm. You know, back in the day, you could only shoot on film. Now yeah. we can shoot on digital. Now we can shoot on film and digital and then have all these different ways that we can do that under all those different umbrellas. So you have this grain that even in the still quiet moments of the film, there's still a, a dynamism. There's still like movement. noise in the visuals. Yeah, because obviously noise dances, it moves. Yeah. So there's this tension that never settles. The grindhouse nature of, of the film, the retro nature, is not done in an ironic, knowing way. It's not like Planet Terror or Machete, Machete, Gets the girl. Machete. He gets the girl. But it's not done like Planet Terror or Death Proof or Machete. It's done in this kind of post-retro way. It's not ironic. Mm. It's this is how we're telling the story because this is the medium that this story needs to be told in. We're not making this story because X, Y, and Z did this film back in the day. Mm -hmm. So it's the first post-retro film. It's just... An incredibly talented writer director utilizing a bag of filmmaking tools um and it just happens that those techniques are most closely associated with 80s and 70s grindhouse cinema it's trippy like i said it's got a lot of color casts and there's slow motion and there's fades and there's double exposure there's poetic voiceover and soliloquies <laughs> And that grain that never settles. Nick Cage is unleashed. He is mesmerizing. And I can see this being a brilliant double feature with Bad Lieutenant. Oh, yeah. The Werner Herzog film, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Because he's completely off the chain. Yeah. He, That's a great film. That one. He is everything that we want Nicolas Cage to be. Yeah. Times 10. <laughs> it is surreal. It is violent it's hypnotizing it's a brain worm that you just can't shake and strangely you know considering that it's a mix of all these different influences it feels so wonderfully original and so amazingly fresh it is a brilliant reprieve from all the franchise filmmaking mm. and that is why it, i think it is the best film of 2018 because it's the only film of this year that i think is pushing the medium forward mm -hmm. it might be using all the old tricks but it is pushing it forward i Who, loved it he's only made one other film hasn't he's he? made one of a one other film called beyond the black rainbow yeah which i've never seen i've seen clips right and you can see that he's got a very strong style straight out the box yeah and it's also the last film composed by johan johansson uh, before Mandy, he died yes. before yeah, he yeah. died yeah which is tragic in yes. itself 
but the, um, you would love the the theme tune the the, um, the soundtrack it's all those yeah. kind of synths and oh cool uh, sort of soundscapes it's brilliant i wanted to see this experience i and i saw it i rented it off itunes or amazon one of them yeah i want to see on the big screen it's a film that has to be seen on the big screen because it is built for the big screen Mm. well if they re-release it i'm gonna be there because i've wanted to see this all year and i've just missed every opportunity Mm. i've missed it and it's really annoying but um yeah it looks amazing and obviously nicholas cage when he hits it he hits it hard. <laughs> yes. So. You know, this is not Con Air, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. This is independent, off the hook, wild, uh, like wild at heart, like that kind of Nicolas Cage. Yeah. He is very, he's very measured and controlled for the most part of the film. But then obviously his character has to flip mm-hmm. at one point. And when he flips... It's Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And but I mean, brilliant. even when he is being kind of slightly subdued, he's still a fantastic actor. Mm. Like if you look at um, Kick-Ass, the first Kick-Ass when he was playing Big Daddy, <laughs> like even when he's not being crazy in that, you still just want to watch him and listen to him mm-hmm. and just be around him because he's got that, that magic about him, which is why everyone loves him so much. So that is cinema in 2018. 2019's got a lot to live up to. Whew. Where do you begin? Well, there's films coming out in 2019 that I really want to see. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Favourite is coming out in January. I'm seeing it on Tuesday. Are you? Mm-hmm. Is it a press screening? I will have seen it on Tuesday by the time this goes on air. Is it yeah. a press screening? Yeah, but there's no plus ones. <sighs> yep. I photographed at an event. Um, they were doing an event with Sandy Powell, who did the um, costumes. Uh-huh. She's just done the costumes for the new Mary Poppins. And they were showing the film. But while they were showing the film, I was downstairs photographing the costumes. Oh, for God's and sake. And then the Q&A with Sandy afterwards. I was like, I love this guy's work. I just want to watch the film. Yeah. Sub earning money. Beautiful Boy is see. coming out. Boy Erased, I've seen already, which is worth watching. Um, okay. But Beautiful good. Boy just looks... I love Timothy Chalamet. I oh, think yeah. he's a well, phenomenal heard... talent and the clips I've seen, he looks amazing. And I love Steve Carell in non-comedy roles. Oh my God, that's reminded me. So you know that Steve Carell worked with Adam McKay? Um, yeah, for uh, the, the Big Short. The Big Short. Yeah. Adam McKay has a new film out called Vice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which looks so good. Yeah, it's the, um, it's the Don Cheney story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks amazing. With Batman. With Batman in a fat suit. No, fat, you, no you put Batman. weight on. Oh God. Wow. It's not a fat suit. You put weight on. Um, it's just Batman. Captain Marvel's coming out, set in the yeah. 90s. That's the only reason I want to see it. Now, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile is the title of this Ted Bundy oh, biopic. Oh, okay. And Zac Efron is playing Ted Bundy. I'm Love so it. happy that Zac Efron is stepping away from stupid, gross-out, yeah. college-humour, bullshit comedies, getting away from Seth Rogen, and actually becoming the actor that... We saw the promise in The Paperboy yeah. and 17 again, yeah. in fact, I'd say. He's really good. He's an amazing actor when he wants to be, but then yeah. he does stupid things like Dirty Grandpa with fucking Robert De Niro. Get out of the gym, Zach. Yeah. Get a movie going. Joker. Joker, yeah. I'm keeping my, I'm keeping my, my, my eyes and my mind open yeah. to that. I'm it, looking forward to Shazam. Yes, Shazam looks like the first... DC film to be fun. Yeah, it looks like a mix of Big, the Tom Hanks movie, and Spider-Man: Homecoming. Yeah, it looks great. 
It Chapter 2. Yeah. I love the yeah. first one. Yeah. I'm, I'm deep in the book at the moment. I love mm. that world. I like the version that they created of this kid's adventure, this 80s story. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that that they've they shifted the time frame so instead of being set from the 50s to the 80s it's set from the late 80s to now yeah which means that this version this chapter two could have a different feel to it to the first one mm-hmm. yeah also on the horror front happy death day to you what's looks that hilarious happy death day came out i think it was last year early last year and it's about a girl who keeps waking up on the same day and then being killed so she's trying to solve her own death so it's like groundhog day it's like groundhog day but with with a, a murder okay and the second film she wakes it's like she wakes up and has the same day again and that but that was bigger and she's got more people to save it so looks what's it called really happy good. death day to you that's the second one that's the second one but the, the first, first one's called happy death yeah, day okay yeah. maybe i'll check that out the irishman this is scorsese yeah. back with robert de niro yeah plus al pacino and hopefully it's going to be a return to form for robert de niro who's been lost in the wilderness for about 20 <laughs> odd years he's not made a decent <sighs> film since heat that's really, i know it's been a long time rob it's been sort terrible it sort it out rambo 5 last blood love those rambo films i couldn't really give a a rambo yeah Love Rambo films. Rocket Spider-Man. Man. Rocket Man, yeah. Rocket yeah. Man's coming out. Um, the Elton John biopic. Yeah. Directed by Dexter Fletcher, starring... Taron Egerton. <sighs> Gorgeous. Yeah. Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah. Should be good. Should be good. The yeah. first one was a surprise. I yeah. really didn't like it the first time I saw it. I walked out halfway. I was drunk. <laughs> I went to see it again and loved it. <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Stephen King films or adaptations seem to be on a... They seem to be like cracking the code mm-hmm. recently. Stephen King adaptations, they're either phenomenal or pig shit. Yeah, they are. There's nothing in between. There's no middle ground. Mm-hmm. You're either Carrie or Dolores Misery Clayburn. or Dolores Claiborne or you are Thinner or the Dark Tower film. Yeah. There's nothing in between. There's the 13, 13 Stephen King books, uh, movies or TV shows currently in production. Amazing. Yeah amazing i can't wait for castle rock why isn't castle rock over in the uk yet i think it's going on sky atlantic around Easter oh fuck time. sky atlantic <laughs> nobody has sky because that's where all the hbo stuff goes yeah it's so annoying ridiculous um and finally the, the year will be rounded out with star Frozen wars two. episode nine <laughs> <laughs> star wars episode nine yet to have a title jj yeah. abrams is directing it after colin trevorrow walked out or he's got bringing it kicked home out but I'm looking forward to it. I mean, Colin Trevorrow is, was responsible for Jurassic World, which was awful. What did he do before? He did a great film called Safety Not Guaranteed, which was Aubrey Plaza kind of investigating this guy who claims to have built a time machine. Oh. It's really worth watching. I'm pretty sure it's on the streaming channels. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really good. But he's been eaten up by Hollywood and he's now writing these big blockbuster pieces of crap. It's so, a shame. You, yeah. know, f- you know, filmmakers, like I said... PTA, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, great that they don't go and do these franchise films. I can't imagine um, Yorgos Lathimos, mm-hmm. the favourite director, Lobster director, Killing of a Sacred Deer director. I can't imagine him going to do, you know, something like Star Wars or Marvel. Yeah. I think Xavier Dolan, of all of all that that group, of, you know, a tours, I think he's the one that could be 
nicked across to come and do a big budget film. Hmm. He's in Boy Erased. He is, yes. Yeah, yeah. He's good Oh, wow. And he's... Is he's he... going to be in it too. He plays a character right at the start. Ah. Is he also yeah. in um, the Tarantino film? Or have I just completely made that up? I don't think so. Is, it's just because everyone's in that film. I would like the, the life and death of John F. Donovan to come out. I know. I know. Just release it already. I want to see if it's as bad as people make out. Yeah. I want to see it. I want to make my own mind up. And then I want to see the new film that he has completed already yeah. in the time that... John F. Don, John, F. Don, John F. Donovan hasn't come out. So a lot's coming out in 2019. We're excited. Very excited. Yeah. We'll be back for season two. We're going to start soon. Uh, head over to the Apple Podcast app. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And come chat with us on Twitter. We're at Pod. Until next time, I am Mandy. I am Simon. Love, Simon. Cut. <laughs>